This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. episode 242 of the craft and bring podcast i'm jamie bogner we are in paso robles california today out here for the firestone walker invitational beer festival one of my favorite absolute favorite beer festivals of the entire year and joining me is uh, joss ruffle of garage project welcome to the podcast joss thank you jamie great to be here and i when i say garage project I should also mention creator of phantasm uh, a very hot product right now, and also someone who works very closely with New Zealand hop growers. Um, you make the trip out here every year for the Firestone Walker Invitational, as you have since 2014. Uh, clearly, it's a fun one for you all, too. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to be back. It's great to see the festival on again. You know, we, we all had a couple of years on the bench, but we're back. Um, so, yeah, it was an absolute no-brainer to get back on the plane and, and make the hike, the pilgrimage back to Paso and pour at the festival. And you always make a great show of it, and the crowds respond to it in kind out here. I can't wait to see what you have concocted for this year's festival. Um, in this episode, like I said, we're going to talk about hops. We will talk about uh, Phantasm. We will talk about Thiols. We will talk about that origin of that, uh, especially when it comes to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc grapes, um, a wine style that I absolutely love coming out of New Zealand. And you've been able to find a way to synthesize those flavors that are so common in wine, uh, you know, through the hops and the terroir of New Zealand, as well as now pulling in product of Phantasm that uses that grape as well in a different kind of way. Thiols, they're so big right now. Everybody's talking about thiols, and we're going to talk about thiols some more on this episode. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, GD Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. GD's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, support for this episode comes from Hop Solutions by BSG. The Hop Solutions portfolio is a joint effort between the brewers, hop specialists, and brewing scientists of BSG and the RAR Technical Center that takes a flavor first application-specific approach to hops, whether you're seeking biotransformation in a juicy IPA or dialing in a classic West Coast profile, BSG has a hop solution for that. Get in touch with the hop nerds at BSG by emailing letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com for samples, spots, and contracts. Like I said, we're going to talk about thiols. I, you know, we've had some conversations in the past. I vaguely remember we're on probably 2015, 2016, back when we used to drive our giant RV out here with the craft beer and brewing brand on the side. And I swear, I think Gordon Shuck was involved in that conversation. I have a very vague memory of it because that's how the evening conversations at the brewer's camp here at the Firestone Walker Invitational tend to go. But Joss, uh, give me some of your background. Walk me through that arc that you took to through craft beer and uh, what took you to the point of starting a brewery and then, uh, you know, how has that progressed then over the last few years? Yeah. So I, um, I started out, uh, with that, that classic epiphany pint. Uh, I used to work in a completely different area industry. I used to work in video games, game development and the studio I was with in Wellington, we used to do a lot of business in America. So I'd come up to California. Uh, LA, San Francisco, and I got handed that that pint of uh, Pliny the Elder, and it just Pliny the Elder. Yeah, that was the beer. Yeah, and okay. it just blew my mind, uh, and it, it sort of set me off on a trajectory of being a, basically a big beer geek. Uh, sure, you know, bringing as many of those great sort of West Coast beers back to New Zealand as I could, and then bringing some you know, classic New Zealand style pilsners in, in, in exchange. And um, yeah, I just sort of went on that trajectory, um, and just just in a you know a twist of fate, uh, my best friend Ian, his older brother Pete, had been uh, brewing professionally for ten years. He was trying to set up his own brewery in Australia, 
and struggling to get through the, the New South Wales government bureaucracy at the time. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's an incredibly intelligent guy and he just, he could not get past that barrier at the time. I, you know, was looking to do something different, um, loved beer and Wellington has always been a really big craft beer capital for, for New Zealand. It's really had a strong, uh, avid sort of craft beer community. But at the time, in, you know, 2010, we weren't brewing any beer in Wellington. We were drinking a huge amount of it, but we weren't brewing a single drop of it. And it sort of just seemed like a great opportunity. It was either a great opportunity or everyone knew something that we didn't. Right, and right, you know, we're right. about to make a, a terrible mistake. Um, but you know, Pete, Pete came over to Wellington, checked it out. His family was already in New Zealand. Uh, and we decided, you know, we'd set up a brewery together. Um, you know, he quit his job, sold his house and suddenly it became very real. Um, you know, we, we didn't have a huge amount of cash when we started, um, but we wanted to do something different. So we set up in an old petrol station in the heart <laughs> of Wellington. We wanted the brewery to be a place that people could come and see, not be tucked away in an industrial estate. Right. And, you know, we, we couldn't afford a proper brewery. We didn't want to compromise. So we made the decision that we'd start on a, on a comically small system, <laughs> uh, but would use that to, to take sure. risks, you know. So we started on a Sabco half barrel oh brew God. magic sure sure uh, and we started under a thing we called 2424 so we started brewing and releasing 24 different beers in 24 weeks which you know i mean today that would be like half of the course um it'd be kind of small compared yeah. to some brewer schedules right? right but you know in 2011 at the time it, it was different and i hope to god you could sell more than a half barrel of beer every week <laughs> <That's> uh, <right. laughs> so yeah and it, you know it allowed us to take yeah, risks that yeah. we wouldn't you know if we're making you know 10 20 barrel batches we sure sure we, so we really uh, we started with some i hear that it's beers. a common story like you know the aslan folks from virginia same kind of thing two barrel system and no one burial same kind of story like no one would go back and do it that way again yeah. today yeah but it certainly had did benefit them at the time given the circumstances absolutely and you know we could have started contract brewing day right. one um but it you know it it allowed us to take a different path and i guess for me coming from a video games background i would have called it rapid iteration prototype testing you sure it's like sure find the fun in a low risk environment because if it's not fun and with crappy graphics it's not gonna be fun when it's like fully polished you can't polish a turd right but you know if, same for beer right you know if if you can't make phenomenal, interesting beers at, you know, half barrel, well, you know, what's going to happen when it's at 20 barrels? And that was our start. Uh, that was our genesis. Uh, and yeah, we wouldn't change it for the world. It sort of really set the trajectory and the pace for Garage Project as progressive, relentless, um, trying to push the boundaries wherever we could. So then what, what did that arc from 2010 on look like? I imagine you took some bigger steps uh, shortly after that to kind of uh, uh, scale up to meet demand. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we got to the end of um, 2011. Uh, we had a, a great following sort of getting established. Uh, we had absolutely no money because you can't make money selling, you know, a half <laughs> no, barrel a week. No. Um and we know at that stage, you know, stashing all that profit away to yeah, make the next giant capital yeah, investment. Exactly. No. Um, you know, we, but you had a proof of concept at least. Exactly. And we had a location. So we, um, you know, we, we did a small, you know, friends, family and fools sort of fundraising round, uh, pulled to, together enough money to get a premier stainless 10 barrel system, uh, five 20 barrel fermenters and a little, um, uh, Mahine and away we went. Um, and you know, the brewery's just growing sort of organically out of that. Um, you know, we, we now have, that same Arrow Street site, uh, we swapped out the 10 barrel for a 20 barrel system. We put in some 40 and 60 barrel tanks. We built out the back and craned in some 100 barrel fermenters, uh, built out a much larger sort of cellar than you'd normally see just from the constraint of our site. So we've got a lot of brights uh, and you know that site can, can package out at, it, at its peak. We did over 10,000 barrels out of it on this <laughs> tiny little site. Yeah. Um, we have a mixed fermentation site in the heart of Wellington uh, with full cool ship, uh, fooders, uh, a lot of punch-ins. We do uh, full spontaneous um, beer out of there, a lot of sort of sp spontaneously fermented New Zealand wildflower-based wild ferment beers. Uh, and then we, we have a partnership brewery, a contract facility in the Hawke's Bay uh, that we don't own, but we sort of helped establish, which is a 50 hectolitre Crohn's full turnkey production brewery. And our volume, larger sort of uh, volume beers are all brewed out of that that brewery now as well. 
Cool. So nowadays, how much beer do you put out there and sell in the market in a given year? We're sort of like a shy under 30,000 barrels. Well, I, I want to talk about some of uh, the experimentation that you've done over the, that time. Uh, certainly, you're known for dramatic, creative beers. Um, you know, but I think what's really interesting, especially for our audience, this New Zealand is a hub of flavor-focused ingredients for, mm -hmm. for brewers around the world, um, finding new options and flavors with hops and finding new options now, of course, with Phantasm, finding ways to optimize for those styles is interesting. And you guys have certainly been on the forefront, uh, mm -hmm. the front lines, pushing that and working on that kind of experimentation. I want to talk about that. But first, are you looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer also arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals no contracts and no monthly fees make arrived no brainer for your craft business go to arrived.com forward slash cbb to set up a free customized demo that's arrived a r r y v e d dot com forward slash CBB, a different kind of POS has arrived. So let's talk about some of those that, you know, this kind of evolution of New Zealand hops. I know as I, you know, my timeline is, is a little rough, but I think, I mean, we're really talking about no more than 10 years or so of impact of Amer of, of New Zealand hops on this broader world of brewing. Certainly the farms as they got started were, I imagine struggling just to keep up with demand, domestic demand, uh, you know, in those earliest days. Um, but talk to me about how you've worked in that sphere using New Zealand hops, but also helping um, not just brewers, but also growers understand how, you know, to uh, select and move flavor in these hops to something in a way that is favorable and pleasant and desirable, you know, mm -hmm. for, for brewers to use. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the industry in New Zealand has a, a long, proud tradition, uh, great history. And if you look at the work that, uh, you know, like scientists like Ron Beetson did uh, with his breeding program, he was really ahead of the curve of breeding hops for aroma and flavor, not just bitterness. Uh, you know, if you look at hops like Nelson Sovin, they, they were first crossed, you know, a long time ago. You know, he, he really was sort of uh, leading the way. Um, I think the industry went through a stage where they were there, but there just wasn't a demand for it or an understanding that this even was existed and could have been bred up for people. Right. And I think, you know, they, they also had, um, you know, it's a, it's a grower owned co-op model at the time. And, you know, they, they had a strong reliance on multinational breweries and, and large contracts. And, you know, I think they had some very exciting hops and they didn't quite know what to do with them. Uh, you know, they went through a, a, a rebranding phase, which was fantastic. You know, Mochueka was not known as Mochueka when it was released. You know, it was like Sartz B or Sartz D. Um, you know, <laughs> sure, not, sure. not many people know that. Right. Um, you know, and, um, you know, Doug Donnellan, the head of uh, NZ Hops at the time, did a great job sort of rebranding and, and, you know, bringing these traditional names, these Maori names to the hops of, of the places where they're growing. You know, Rewaka and Mochueka, um, you know, brilliant. Um, we we sort of got in, engaged with with hops as a as a brewer um, being based in in Wellington. We're a very short flight from Nelson. You know, the plane basically takes off and then lands immediately. <laughs> um, and you know, how could we not want to get involved and, and sort right, of have that right. connection? You know, I think of it like a, a chef. You know, it's almost like unimaginable for a, a top chef to you know rely on ingredients to turn up in a box from god knows where and have no import or knowledge of like how they're grown or picked or harvested or you know and that happens all the time for right. us unfortunately as, as an industry but you know we had that proximity um and access was was limited and it was hard um you know going back a number of years and 
we fortuitously won a won a trophy at the New Zealand Brewer Brewer Guild Awards and Plant and Food Research sponsored it and 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 you know Ron presented it to us and came with the promise of a tour of their facility and that sort of set us off on our journey of of sort of understanding that there are a lot more experimental hops that they weren't necessarily getting brewer feedback on that they weren't necessarily getting that interaction it was very at the time very sensory led it wasn't being uh you know brew trial led uh and understanding what was happening in the fermentation uh and it sort of just uh created a pathway for us to sort of start engaging more directly with farms and around that same time you know we we formed a relationship with uh freestyle and so we had a, a new owner come in and, and buy a farm in New Zealand that was independent. They wanted to move outside of the co-op model, uh, which was, you know, I think challenging for a lot of people at the time. Uh, but, you know, they, they had a clear vision of wanting to, to grow and, and sort of produce excellent hops for the world's sort of best craft brewers. And it was something we could really get behind. You know, we could have full access to lot selection. We could understand, you know, give input to how the hops have been grown, harvested. And, you know, they, they brought on their own palletizing so we could actually have input onto how it was, you know, palletized as well. Uh, and that was really a game changer. And, you know, I think the industry now is, is, is vastly different to what it was even a handful of years ago. You know, you have a number of independent farms, be it Freestyle, Hop Revolution, Clayton's, you know, there's, there's a number of options sort of alongside New Zealand Hops who have really, um, you know, carried on um, their tradition. They've released Nectaron, new varieties. Right, and, right. You know, they're, they're sort of, I think, um, you know, I think sometimes competition is, is healthy, you know. It sure, really sort of helps, sure. helps sort of lift everyone's game. Um, so it's an exciting time for the industry, you know. Our involved but that kind of transparency and that working hand-in-hand -hand with brewers is also a reason why more and more brewers are interested with New Zealand hops compared to the hops that are coming from uh, another large continent close by down there, That's right. which has a much more uh, opaque process yeah, uh, I, around that kind of thing. I mean, for us, you know, I think we've, we've seen what's possible really led out of Yakima, you know, yeah. um, you know, I think it's phenomenal the work, you know, we see YCH giving such direct feedback to their growers and creating such a positive feedback loop. And, you know, we want to sort of emulate that down in New Zealand and, and give people that access. Uh, our role in it is we're the, at Garage Project, we're the co-founders of Harpy Research with Freestyle, which is a large um, government-backed, New Zealand government-backed program. Um, you know, it's, it's multi-year, it, it's a $12 million project with a huge portion of government funding behind it to sort of bring transformational growth to the New Zealand hop industry. And that, that sort of gives us a wide range of tools like uh, Freestyle can do uh, a lot of on-farm research about, you know, sustainable practices for strings, for, for, for training the hops through to picking windows or fertigation or drying windows. Uh, you know, we can do brewing trials. Within that, we have multiple breeding programs underway and then a, a sort of a remit to help sort of grow and, and sort of encourage new growing regions in New Zealand. So we're starting to see farms emerging outside of the typical Nelson catchment. Mm. We've got a new farm going in in the Nelson Lakes region, uh, which is about two hours south of Nelson, uh, but very exciting, very promising to see new Appalachians, new Tawa coming available uh, alongside the new hop varieties coming through. So, you know, it's just a really, really interesting, energetic sort of moment for the industry. And this coming harvest is the first time, you know, we've got our borders open as well. So, <laughs> sure, you know, sure. I think, you know, in Fortress New Zealand, the, there's a lot of things that have been happening quietly over the last two years and we can sort of share them this this coming harvest in March. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about, um, you know, some of those flavor-based projects. Uh, you know, certainly over when the, the first time, I mean, if I'm thinking about my first experience with a hop like Nelson, it was probably through Alpine, Alpine beers, West Coast IPA, Nelson. And, you know, we, that was the context at the time. It was very much West Coast IPA based. And then this crazy thing happened in the world of beer, 2014, 2015, 2016. And all of a sudden, hazy IPA, hazy and juicy IPA, where it could be sweeter, um, heavier, thicker, big, more body, um, and also more intense hop flavor to balance that out. 
uh, became a thing. And it seems like New Zealand hops were very particularly positioned at that time to provide a breadth, you know, because now we're also talking about this world of beer that became a special double dry hops add a, a whole new element, yeah. you know, to these core beers. Um, but talk to me about how you all worked in collaboration with growers to, to think about these flavors and to find new ways to pull flavors through the brewing process, through the fermentation process, uh, pleasant, you know, pleasurable flavors from those hops themselves that maybe, you know, a few years prior brewers wouldn't have been as aware of it were possible with those hops. Yeah. I think starting with, uh, Alpine Nelson's a great, great shout, you know, and Pat was just so ahead of the curve there and not just, you know, the fact that it's, um, I mean, we call it Sovin in New Zealand. Sovin, okay. We don't. We don't. I mean, Nelson's a town for us, so uh, it's always always quite funny when we come overseas and like, well, it's brewed with Nelson. We always, well, in New Zealand would say that's a Sovin. That's all, all the hops are pretty much Nelson. Yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sovin beer. Sovin. Okay. It's uh, Nelson Sovin. Um, you know, but uh, one part of that beer, which is is particularly interesting, is the. It's like I'm saying, oh, I brewed that with Yakima. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that wouldn't be right. Well, that you know that one interesting thing with that beer and, and, you know, I guess to the point of sort of new, new hops coming along that sometimes almost going back and looking at previous, previous releases, uh, Southern cross, uh, is a hop that plays a big role. And as I understand in that beer, Southern cross and Nelson, um, and it's a, it's a, a less glamorous hop, but it seems to be a hop that has a lot of very interesting compounds and components. You can look at some of Scott Janish's, uh, work looking at uh, that hop in particular that seems to be some very interesting synergistic effects uh, that come along from the use of it very high in like two MIB um, sort of apricot flavors uh, and you know it seems to just really help amplify and sort of change hops and you know as we're sort of starting to get more awareness of, of also the use of hops in different times of the process you know Southern Cross maybe more on the hot side addition I guess maybe analogous to sort of Idaho seven or some of these sort of American varieties, we're starting to see more focus on sort of hot side additions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think not only do we have sort of interesting, exciting new varieties coming through from, from New Zealand, we have this great kind of pantry, this larder of existing varieties that um, we're sort of still wrapping our heads around and better understanding. You know, I think we have a, a front row seat to sort of the work that freestyle are doing uh, you know, they're really pushing, they're picking windows, they're really exploring the sort of outer limits of what compounds they can actually extract out of, you know, Nelson Sovin or Mochueka if they really sort of push those picking windows. What is, uh, from a sensory perspective, you know, what, what would be the difference between early season, mid season, late season Sovin and, or Motueka? You know, I think it's like the full, full spectrum of sort of like citrus through to like very heavy tropical. And then if you push it too far, you know, you get that sort of classic quote unquote dank. Yeah. yeah um, a little onion and garlic and yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's, um, there's, and I think this links back to thiols, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, free thiols and some bound thiols in, in New Zealand hops. I mean, that was the classic thing that sort of really piqued my interest about thiols back in the day was sort of reading that Nelson Sovin was obviously it's a very sort of quote-unquote white wine uh, hop it's named after Sauvignon Blanc Nelson Sovin you know Sauvignon Blanc uh, contained thiols and they didn't know why you know uh, if you look at a lot of Ron's work he would sort of focus on the unknown compounds and if you look at the unknown compounds as a percent of New Zealand hops there's a staggering amount. You know, there's a staggering amount. We just, we just don't even know what they are hmm. or what they do. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're we're in this sort of interesting phase now where uh, I guess the the awareness and understanding around thiols has got to the point for for on a hops front, you know, farms like Freestyle are starting to actually really dial in, uh, try try to sort of grow, uh, pick dry and palletize and preserve those compounds those very delicate fragile compounds in a way and you know they're, they're then testing and analyzing them and you know one of the few laboratories in the world who can actually right. test for that and seeing you know discovering that they're getting 
shockingly high levels compared to what common wisdom, previous research has shown from other other sort of growing lots in New Zealand that maybe mm. weren't picked at the right moment, were dried too quickly or too high, maybe the palletization was too hot, you know, lots of reasons why those sure. compounds might have disappeared. So, you know, I think part of the conversation is like, you know, what what can we do to sort of like develop and release new varieties, but it's also what can we do with the existing varieties to actually sort of like dial them in and, and push them even further than what we've previously experienced from them. Let's talk about, you know, uh, Nelson Sovin in a way that, you know, from a fermentation perspective, um, you know, as you all started playing with that and working with it and trying to coax, um, you know, interesting results out of it in Motueka and Ruwaka and others. Um, talk to me about some of the things that you found in using those. Certainly, we've t- been talking lately this year on the on the podcast with folks like Laura Burns or, or uh, you know, Ben from Surly, uh, you know, in particular talking about how, you know, early uh, fermentation uh, dry hopping or dry hopping during active fermentation is probably not creating additional haze components and maybe not doing some of the things that people thought it was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been focusing on mash hopping as a way to, again, you know, set up these kind of thiol precursors to allow for, you know, some of the, the yeast that they're developing to optimize that, to, you know, to pull those things out. But from a, you know, from a standpoint, your standpoint, uh, you know, as you're working with garage project on with New Zealand hops, you know, what are some of the kind of fermentation uh, parameters that you have found produce really pleasant results and, uh, you know, things that uh, drinkers are going to respond to in a more compelling way. I think the sort of caveat there is that it's constantly evolving and changing. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, I mean, uh, and how the, has your process changed over the last three or four years then? Where were you and where are you, where do you find yourselves now? Well, I think, you know, and this is, this is very, very much, uh, within garage project. This is Pete's Pete's domain. Um, you know, I think we've been on a real a real journey. You know, the second or third beer we ever brewed in the twenty four was Pernicious Weed, which we it's a it's a Nelson Sovin Rakow um, double dry hopped IPA eight uh, percent, which we've brewed since twenty eleven, and we still brew. Uh, you know, we knock out hundred barrel tanks of that um, to this day, and um, you know, that's sort of like our take on a west coast sort of ipa with a new zealand spin and it's like very intense sort of grapefruit citrus when you combine nelson and, and Rakel together they yeah really play play well together um you know and then i think as we we sort of evolved into uh sort of the softer more sort of expressive styles and uh, east coast you know i think about a beer like uh um, sunrise valley which we we brewed in collaboration with um, jc at trillium and that's a 100% dry hop beer, uh, huge dry hop charge, uh, nothing on the hot side. Huh. Uh, that's the number one rated beer in New Zealand on untapped. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's incredibly aromatic. And, you know, this we brew it with fresh hops from the harvest. So we've just released the 22 edition. And it's, um, you know, I think the work Freestyle have done has played a big role and, you know, it, it's the best best batch best version of it to date um but you know if i think about what we're doing increasingly at the moment uh, as you say it's switched back from that extreme of you know like all hops into the fermenter no no hot side to layering in hops looking for ways to sort of extract flavor and, and layer in those those compounds into the wort stream all the way through uh, so you know, thinking a bit more about yeah, mash hopping, what's going into the into the sort of the whirlpool, uh, even exploring for some New Zealand hops in particular, uh, what dip hopping or you know having a steep hop steep right. might bring to it, or, or sort of potentially um, you know volatize off or remove um, to sort of get to that point where it's just like that nice, potent, expressive tropical fruit flavor and aroma that we're searching for. Sure. It is such an interesting thing about thiols that they are so low like threshold, like that they are incredibly difficult to measure. And yet they also seem to have a hardiness, both a fragility and a hardiness that uh, we're, we're all trying to understand that somehow they can make it through a boil through a mash hopping process or a hot side whirlpool kind of process. But, uh, you know, in, in other ways, they uh, they tend to get 
worked out of that kind of you know brew and not produced that kind of uh, you know piece? Are there are there some of those things that you all have learned through this process? Uh, you know that that you know you, that help you kind of keep those things in in the beer. Yeah, I mean the files and uh, the and the precursor form are, are really interesting, and um, you know they they are relatively speaking quite stable. Um, you know, I think an interesting sort of uh, way to think about that is you know look at malt. You know, we we are increasing becoming increasingly aware of the the, the thiol potential precursor potential sure, on malt. Sure. And you think about how malt is handled. It's it's not you know in a nitrogen flushed environment. Right, it's right. you know it's put through you know probably a, quite a beating compared to um, you know hops in particular. Um, they're they're sort of compounds that. Uh, until the point of, of conversion, relatively speaking, they're stable. If we look at phantasm, you know, we, we do a, a huge amount at, at the point of harvest to, to and a, a number of steps to sort of make sure we're sort of preserving them and capturing that precursor potential. Once we've got it uh, processed into, into product, relatively speaking, it's quote unquote quite stable. You know, we, we've seen from our very first trial batches of 2019, uh, being put into beer even today in, in a recent trial, uh, very high levels of, of precursor converting into free thiol. Um, you know, we look at temperature and degradation. Uh, you know, if, if it sits at 20 degrees, it's quite happy. You're not going to see a huge degradation of, of precursor. It's only when you really sort of push it up to the sort of, you know, 60 plus degrees, you know, you'll start losing them within hours. But, hmm. um, you know, it's... It's quite fascinating, um, you know, these quite mysterious compounds um, that we're still, you know, learning a lot about every day. But, you know, until the point of conversion, quite relatively speaking, quote unquote, stable. And then as soon as they convert, they're yeah. extremely delicate. Well, let's use that as a, a way to actually talk about what Phantasm is itself. But before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brutac has taken technology they invented, working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brutac's innovation list, head on over to ssbrutac.com. So you mentioned Phantasm. Explain to me, if I were a layperson, what Phantasm is. Phantasm is a natural thiol precursor product derived from Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc grape skins. Uh, it's a concentrated addition that you can put into your brewing stream that under the right fermentation conditions will unlock and give you a massive boost of free thiols uh, delivering high levels of 3SH, 3SHA. So, uh, you know, anything from sort of citrus tropical through to sort of like high passion fruit notes uh, in your beer. So basically, and you're not going to tell me what the exact process is, but you will dry and concentrate and it comes in a powder form that you then add. How do you then use that through the brewing process? So uh, it's it's a it's a powder that we recommend is dosed on the hot side. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, this is one of the sort of the surprising things, you know, all through our trials, we expected Phantasm to be a, a cold side dry hot, sure, sure. dry hot product. And, um, you know, we, we saw some breweries as, as they do just starting to like really push the boat out and what happens if you use it in the mash? What happens if you use it in the, in the hot side in the Whirlpool? And, you know, we, we quickly saw in the Whirlpool edition, um, you know, you can add in the powder, you can load in those precursors to your wort stream, and then it's it's present at the start of fermentation. Thiols are typically formed within the first 24 hours of fermentation. Uh, so it's important to load those, those precursors in at the start. Uh, you know, we do see breweries adding it uh, cold side dry hop. Uh, you just need to have active yeast. You know, it's critical. Yeah. You know. How does the yeast then take those precursors and turn them into thiols that uh, you know the our you know human sensory system can uh, respond to? Yeah, that's a question I'd throw to Laura over to make <laughs> like, like, sure, take, sure, sure. take a hard pass on that. But, fair enough. Fair you know, enough. <laughs> um, you know, as you know, as I understand that you know there needs to be an active 
you know, gene, like an IRC7 gene that can actually convert them and convert them in, in the sort of nitrogen-rich environment that beer, beer has mm -hmm. compared to, you know, winemaking, typically low nitrogen environment. So we, we have a number of challenges to actually sort of convert them in the same way that you do in, say, a, a Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but, you know, with these thiolized yeast strains, uh, like, you know, Omega's Cosmic Punch or, uh, you know, Star Party that have been released, they're, you know, they're sort of incredibly effective at that conversion process uh, to take them from that bound state to a free thiol. Talk to me a little bit about this, you know, terroir similarity, you know, between Marlboro Sauvignon and hops and how this thiol piece relates between those, because um, you know, just personally growing up, my or I shouldn't say growing up, my my father in particular is a humongous Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc fan. Mm -hmm. We've been drinking lots of Marlboro Sauvignon Blancs for you know 10, 15 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always responded to the flavor because they had that kind of you know, kiwi, leashy, kind of green tropical fruit character to them that was really intriguing. And you, mm -hmm. you know, having drunk plenty of Sauvignon Blanc wines in you know from other places. Uh, it didn't capture that same kind of like brightness and that, that green tropical fruit brightness. Uh, and it was fascinating to see that that also could be captured through hops grown in a similar New Zealand terroir. Uh, you know, you mentioned that we don't know exactly what that is, that, uh, you know, the, the science isn't exactly there. Um, you know, but, but are there any kind of chemical, you know, con continuities between those? You know, I think the, the thing which is just fascinating is, um, you know, we as a as a wine growing region uh, in in Marlborough, you know, we, we have a number of wine growing regions throughout the country, and you know, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is distinctive. You know, if you took uh, Gisborne Sauvignon Blanc or Queenstown Central Otago Sauvignon Blanc, it, it's, it, they're nice. They just don't necessarily have the same intense intensity and pop that you get out of Marlborough. Um, you know, the region um, is very rich in these precursors and these thiol compounds and as an industry a lot of work has gone into understanding them and how to harness them and how to sort of really best utilize them um so you know as a starting point for phantasm there was there was this great bedrock of research and and expertise um around that sort of you know the hunt for understanding the thiols and it's really i mean it's it's a remarkable um you know, there's, there's aspects of what drives and increases thiol uh, precursors and it's a stress response from, from the plant um, that sort of releases them uh, that are perfectly suited for large-scale production. It was sort of like, hmm. you know, the, the sort of dream scenario of the very sort of aspects of, of, of scaling up winemaking to a very large level increase the amount of precursor and <laughs> yeah. you know drive those 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 characteristics um in, in what way is it uh you know, it has to do with irrigation does it have to do with you know picking time what what is, no what, what is the stressor there machine harvesting oh machine harvesting yeah if you take Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc that's hand harvested it has significantly lower levels of precursor than one huh. that is machine harvested uh, so the the very very nature of sort of making you, <laughs> making your you know your your winemaker's job easier uh, helps increase your product and then there's a number of number of steps they'll go on yeah. along the way but uh, to get to that great end result w why it sort of carries across um, to hops uh, we as I said we don't know I think you know there's there's definitely probably something my gut tells me atmospheric. Uh, you know, we have a giant hole in the ozone over New Zealand. We have a very high UV uh, sort of level in the country. Maybe there's something in that. Who knows? But, you know, it is just this interesting quirk that, um, mm -hmm. you know, we have. Um, yeah. When it comes to Phantasm as a product, do you work with specific wineries? I mean, you know, it, I assume and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are using post-processing, uh, you know, skins product that is a byproduct of the winemaking process. But, uh, you know, as we know, oftentimes, you know, even as it happens in brewing, yeah. you can do a fruit extraction or a fruit maceration on a beer and still have plenty of flavor left in those kinds of things. Um, and fantastic that you might be able to, well, gosh, that was a terrible pun <laughs> right there. Um, but great, a, a, 
a very positive thing that you can pull something out of waste stream and and potentially uh, find a new use for it that, that creates uh, added value for brewers. Hundred um, percent. You know, so we we work very closely with one winery in particular. We have a, a another winery we've recently started working with this this last season. Uh, we're really dialing in on known blocks that are, that are like punchy, that mm. are thiol bomb blocks uh, as a starting thiol point. Thiol bomb blocks, yeah, yes. As a starting point. <laughs> uh, we, it's very labor intensive. It's yeah. very sort of harvest critical. You know, we, uh, we're making sure we're capturing the, the, that mark, that material at very precise moments, times of the day, uh, treating it in particular ways um, to ensure that we're sort of getting the optimal, optimal result. Um, and then, yeah, otherwise that would have gone on the compost. Yeah. 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 And I imagine the winemakers don't hate working with you on this kind of thing. They love it. You know, they, uh, as you know, it takes a lot of great beer to make good wine. Sure, and, sure. um, you know, we, we, we have a very sort of close working relationship there. Um, they're fascinated in, in, you know, what's happening in the brewing world in some ways, you know, we have no boundaries compared to wine, which is, you know, really, really quite linear in what they can and can't do. Um, and you know, it's, I think it's just intriguing to see, um, this sort of thiol discovery that we're starting, which they've been on for the last sort of 20, 15, 20 plus years. Yeah. But at least they've got some research and some understanding that you can piggyback on and, uh, you know, and work with. So you say, you know, as, as you're working on this, that it is not terribly temperature sensitive in the initial stages. And then if you store, it seems to store much like hops, where if you are keeping it, you know, uh, relatively cold mm-hmm. or freezer temperature, that it, it doesn't degrade to a to a significant degree. Absolutely, we've got forced aging trials underway um, that have sort of given us that those early results, and then looking, you know, it's relatively speaking such a new new product. We we don't we just have the data on what it looks like three four years out from, right, from right. where we are. Um, but you know, it as I say, it's um, you know, and this is the the I think the exciting thing, and I always sort of say with Phantasm is it's uh, you know it's 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 a it's a work in progress. This is this is experimental. This is an experimental product that you're you're brewing with. If you can get your hands on it, you know, it's um, we want to gather in that feedback. We want to understand how you're you're learning about it, and it's it's been something that's evolved not just with phantasm coming along you know it's it's a product that was in development for a number of years um you know we released it in early 2020 and you know a few months later alongside it came thialized yeast um you know and it was uh just unbeknownst to to us unbeknownst to omega you know and and berkeley and you know, these companies working on right. these these products um you know, they were they were developing yeast to sort of really unlock thiol expression. We were developing a thiol precursor product. Uh, so we're in this bigger, broader kind of public beta of uh, Phantasm, if if we want to call it that. We'll tie that back to your software roots there, um, where brewers are intrigued and interested in making products with it now all over the world. Um, what what has that learning from the brewing process fed back in and helped you all understand? Because and that's what I'm, one thing I find so interesting about this broader world of brewing that we're in. People do things. They try their own things. They make their own things. Push this information back out to the, the manufacturers, the labs, um, you know, producers, the agricultural side of the business that's creating these things. And, you know, it's this beneficial loop that uh, it helps everyone be able to guide everyone to make things things better certainly there are brewers out there that have been finding new things with phantasm trying that in different styles of beer using different kind of fermentation approaches there um, different stylistic approaches what are some of the more interesting ones that uh, that you've uh, either been made aware of or you know the some of the learning from that process that's come back, uh, you know, that you've, uh, that, that's been intriguing even to you. Yeah. You know, I think, um, that's the great thing with, with, um, contemporary brewers is they, they're looking to, to break things. They're looking to sort of, <laughs> sure, you know, sure. uh, try something new, try something different. You know, we're, we're very clear with Phantasm that it's, it's not a dry hop replacement and, you know, 
the, the crew at Humble Sea pretty much straight out of the gates came out with a hundred percent phantasm <laughs> beer, which, you know, as we yeah. had, you know, it had an incredible aroma, but it was sort of just a bit lacking in, in sort of flavor. Yeah. Um, you know, that's been, even that was sort of, you know, unique and exciting to see of just how far you can push it. Um, you know, we're seeing brewers just start to really think about how they load in a lot of precursor into that sort of work production, mash hopping, phantasm additions, other hop additions into the hot side. You know, they'll unlock a huge amount of um, thiol flavor early in the fermentation. And then it's a real sort of challenge to keep it. Um, so we know now that dry hopping can sort of interrupt and squish these these sort of very delicate um, thiol aroma compounds. And so the sort of the races on now that I see is sort of how to find a way to sort of make, I guess, monoterpene alcohols and, and sort of the, the compounds you're getting out of traditional dry hop live alongside and sort of work with thiols uh, and not sort of sort of like override each other. Um, you know, we know from looking at research that there's a really interesting sort of entourage effect between thiols and monoterpene alcohols. There's really interesting trials out showing, you know, thiols by themselves maybe get a, an average rating in a, in a sensory monoterpene alcohols by themselves got an average rating. You put the two together and it was, it was like by far the most preferred um, beer that was put forward in the trial. Um, you know, so I think. Are there specific uh, monoterpene alcohols that we're talking about here that uh, heighten that kind of sensory? We've talked about the entourage effect, but it was with uh, Keith Via of Seria Beverage and Blue Moon, who was making talking about that in a purely a cannabis spectrum, yeah. um, where the, the same terpenes, uh, you know, have a similar entourage effect there. But you know, and here are there specific, you know, because. Now we're talking about potentially finding what you're talking about with something like Southern Cross mm. that might potentially have a terpene content that um, might benefit the expression of some of these thiols. You know, are there some yeah. specific ones there? We have really tie this all back together like that. Yeah, I mean that's a level of um, of trial brewing we yeah. haven't we yeah. haven't got to yet, uh, but I think it's a fascinating one. Um, you know, one of the things I can share today, which is, I guess, an exclusive depending on when you release the podcast, um, you know, we've we've collaborated with YCH on a on a Phantasm cryo blend. Uh, so I think boxes are just hitting brewers doors now of a Citra Mosaic Simcoe cryo and Phantasm blend. Interesting. Uh, 303 experimental blend all in one. Uh, and we saw in the trial brews that the YCH undertook with that, you know, the phantasm by itself, the hops by itself, ratios of 20 and 40% phantasm added, you know, we saw phantasm by itself would release, um, you know, 1400 nanograms per liter of 3SH. Um, the hops by themselves release about 600, 700. Uh, you added 20% phantasm to those same hops and it released 1600 nanograms per liter of 3SH. So just a tiny addition of those uh, cysteine bound precursors from Phantasm. Uh, you know, I think that's the other thing to sort of keep in mind. We, we deliver a lot of cysteine bound precursor versus glutathione, which is typically what you'll see in hops. Um, they played together in a way that just a 20% addition, you know, the, the, it was greater than the sum of the parts is uh, and you know i think that's really exciting you know i don't see phantasm as a dry hop replacement it's sort of i don't know talk about it like the msg of beer it's just like add a little bit and it's just <laughs> right it's just giving you that pop um you know as uh, laura will sort of say from omega it's sort of it's just kind of safeguarding or ensuring that you're just getting this background wash of of um of free thiols to then sort of like work your hops in and amongst and around Sure, sure. Maybe we won't call it MSG because that's loaded with a whole bunch of other, uh, a whole bunch of other baggage. MSG is well. delicious. I'll fight anyone <laughs> who says otherwise. Oh well, that's been a lot of thiol talk. Let's, um, you know, as we get on here, let's talk a little bit about some of the you know other creative uh, brewing approaches that Garage Project has taken, and some of the interesting. Uh, maybe we can talk about your uh, dramatic 
visual and layered approach to uh, uh, pouring special beers out here at, at a place like Firestone Walker. Uh, one of the things that we've been interested and intrigued by over the last couple of years are, are brewers playing not just with the idea of flavor, not just with the idea of visuals, but also the idea of texture and time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that the way that you all have been thinking about some of these brewing experiments plays in all of those things mm-hmm. that. Uh, um, you know, time as we used to think about it in terms of beer meant uh, nice lacing on a glass that reminded you of each sip that you took, or something becoming more expressive as it warms. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's an easy way to think about time. Um, you know, but time, especially as you start thinking and texture, as you start thinking about incorporating other textures. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly with hazy IPA, we think about texture and in in, you know, and we describe beers as chewy in a way that we might not have in the past or might not have meant the exact same thing in the past. But as you all are now doing it, especially using, uh, you know, freezing or slushy kind of approaches to this um, and building multi-layered pores that interact and change over time, it's a very different way even of thinking about how the flavor experience, but also the textural experience and the temperature experience mm-hmm. shifts as somebody drinks it. Talk to me about, you know, the kind of creative process behind this and uh, and how you all think and approach these things. Yeah. We're going to give a lot of creative credence to you <laughs> making slushy beers that you pour at festivals. And we're going to dive into the whys and hows. I love it. You know, I think for us, um, you know, where this really came from is, uh, you know, in, in New Zealand and Wellington, we have Beervana, which is the largest beer festival in, in New Zealand. And beer festivals um, in New Zealand and Australia are quite different um, to what we've sort of become, uh, we've been able to experience up here in America. And I guess the main difference is, um, they're really expensive. <laughs> so, you know, we, okay. we don't have the free pour, um, system, you know, we, you know, you buy a ticket to go into the festival and you get your glass and then you've got to buy tokens and actually buy every single beer or pour that you get. And I guess it came from, from me, maybe just being frustrated, um, you know, when I was attending these festivals before we even had the brewery was, you know, a lot of breweries would just turn up with their regular core range beer and you'd pay festival prices on top of a ticket to sort of have something you could go and buy in the, buy in the bottle shop or the supermarket for a fraction of the price. So we really sort of took it upon ourselves that if we we're going to turn up to a festival, we have to bring all new beer. And it also, when you think about it, if you're buying a ticket, to a festival, then we have to put on a show. You buy a ticket, we put on a show. And that sort of was really sort of the genesis behind thinking about how we could sort of pour and serve beers in different ways. And I think some of them are going back to very sort of traditional atten- like methods and, and sort of um, traditions. So, you know, I think one of the things we're sort of known for is our, I guess, our hot poker and, you know, developing that sort of, that that sort of classic um, classic tradition of sort of taking a poker out of the fire and sort of muddling sure, muddling sure. it into your mug of ale, you know, probably didn't take someone you know back in the day too long before sitting in front of the fire looking at the looking at the poker, looking at their mug in front of them, and being, shit, I wonder what happens when I put that in there, and well, that's delicious. But you know, we we sort of worked hard to create a, a, a hot poker that we can sort of plug in and turn on on demand. And you know, for a festival, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can't have a, a raging fire and you know, right, right. pull it out. So you know, how the can we insurers of these festivals <laughs> frown upon that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's not looked on too kindly. And then you know, it sort of it sort of sprung from there. Um, you know, we do the two tap flat white, and it was really you know, this, this notion of like, well, I mean, New Zealand, I'm going to say it's the home of the flat white. It's, you know, we, we've got a proud coffee culture in Wellington in particular. And, you know, it was like, how could we, how could we do a flat white beer? And we, we teamed up with a, a, a fantastic local roastery flight and, you know, that just won, you know, Nick there just won like the barista of the year award in New Zealand. And so it was like, you know, we just went in with like, um, you know, a beginner's mindset of like, you know, obviously we've all seen a, a flat white or a, a milk-based coffee being made a bazillion times, right? And it was like, make a coffee, tell us what you're doing. Right, right. And then it sort of just struck us as he was making it. It's like flat white's two things. I mean, this is obviously sounds obvious saying this, right? You know, it's, it's espresso and, st- and steamed milk, you know? So how can we make a flat white beer that's not two things? You know, how can we make a flat white beer that's just a beer? You know, obviously it has to be two components. 
So that led to the process of making a incredibly rich over roasted coffee stout that's not designed to be drunk by itself. Uh, and then having the milk, you know, and for us, that's a nitrogenated lactose cream ale uh, with vanilla. And, you know, we've, we discovered that you can pour that out of a nitro tap into a, a milk jug. And at the moment of pouring it, it comes out jet white like milk. We overcarbonate the keg and we can actually then pour it into the into the coffee as you would a barista and make even latte sort of foam art. <laughs> uh, and as you say, there's an interesting textual thing going on there. Um, the, the layered beers we do, like Yuzu Rising Sun, you know, uh, that came out of our birthday celebrations and sort of looking at nostalgia in, in New Zealand. We have this sort of chain of restaurants that's really kind of quite... Uh, quite dinky quite kitsch and you know everyone in New Zealand remembers growing up going to this restaurant and having these traffic light layered soft drinks and <laughs> you know we made a traffic light beer for our, our um, I think it was our fifth birthday and you know we we had three distinct layers to this beer through density um, which was phenomenal uh, but it was also a pain in the ass to do three layers and so for the, I think that Firestone Festival we we paired it back to just two layers and you know yuzu sour yuzu and raspberry um, you know we've played around with foam uh, you know it's like restaurants and chefs you know like foam it's, right, it's right. almost like its own cliche yeah, yeah. but you know we we, <laughs> we sort of um, approach that because we'd always turn up with a nitro keg to a festival and it would pour like shit you know like it was you know <laughs> right, right. it's just like murphy's law right Kegs you know, pouring like shit at festivals is a pretty common occurrence yeah yes. you're gonna yeah. put the nitro beer on and it's a pain in the ass and it's just pouring foam so we're like well what if we just made a beer that was designed to pour like just shit lean into it yeah, yeah. yeah and so you know what would happen if we made like a, a chocolate a chocolate raspberry beer foam you know like a foamy beer that we could then layer onto a stout and it would drop into the beer and change the flavor of the beer as you were drinking it as you're experiencing it uh you know i think for us it's it's just a lot of fun and then you know i think a technique a serving technique is interesting because once you develop it you can then apply it to other ingredients other flavors you know Fran adria big care of mine chef from el bully mm -hmm. You know that was his that was his modus operandi. You know he basically pioneered techniques, you know spherification, all these sorts of things, and then he could bring it to other flavors. And so right. I sort of think you know the layered or the foam or you know the the two you know the two tap concept. Uh, how can we sort of then bring other flavors to it? That's really exciting. Um, and you, you know the technological framework for it, and then you uh, extend that framework out to yeah. other executions. Yeah. So we have custom. You know, come by the booth tomorrow. You'll see we've got custom tap faucets that we've had engineered uh, to help with that. Um, you know, custom tap faucets. What do they, What do they do? You know, they help with our layered beers. Basically, spread the beer out. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's built into the tap itself, so that you don't have to say use a spoon or another spreading device to kind of slow it down. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, that's the great thing about a beer festival as well. You got to think about how you can bang these out. Be efficient. You got a yeah. long line out there, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. You know, I think mean, one of the ones we, um, you know, did years ago was also just we did a tap blender. We had these the custom built faucet that sort of like connected two taps in like a swirly like straw, like those crazy straws you know, you yeah. when you're a kid. And it would sort of like, you know, you'd pull one one lever down and you'd be turning on two taps. It was two beers being shot into the same glass at the, you know, at the same time, just for that that instantaneous blend. But also the satisfaction of seeing the two colors of the beers swirling around each other before, <laughs> before they drop into your glass. So much drama, but uh, but it's entertaining as well as flavorful. Yeah. Um, can't wait to see what you've come up with for, uh, for the yeah. Firestone Walker Invitational tomorrow. Well, Joss, it's been really fun to talk to you about all of these uh, experiments, but I think that's a great time to bring it to a close and for us to move yeah. on to the, the more social elements of this evening. Yeah. g and Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design, whether you're brewing a juicy IPA or a classic West Coast rendition. BSG has a hop solution for that. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality and put SS Brewtex advances to work in your brew house. Just a reminder, your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast each week. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and let us know that this content matters to you. 
Joss, if people want to learn more about Garage Project and also more about Phantasm, where can they learn more about both of those things? Instagram's the yeah. you know the the easy place to. to What's the uh, Garage Project Instagram just, handle? Just straight uh, Garage Project, as I would say. Uh, you can pronounce it that way, yeah. but this is America, yeah. and I'm going to pronounce it Garage Project. Yeah, so just Garage just, Project, just yeah. straight Garage Project, okay. and then um, you know Phantasm Phantasm dot dot nz dot nz. Um, you know, message us, ask questions, get in touch through Instagram. Um, we'll try to get back to you at some point. Appreciate you talking to me about uh, all of these things, thiols, hops, um, dramatic beer pours, and all of the rest on this episode. Yeah, yeah. cheers. Yeah, cheers, Jamie. It's been great. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.